The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. This morning I'll be covering Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10, and, and the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, this story only appears in the book of Luke, and yet it's one of the most uh, well-known narratives in the, in the Gospels. And if you've grown up in the church, um, you probably learned about Zacchaeus through that song. You guys know what song I'm talking about? Um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Church, you want to sing it after the service? <laughs> That's right, climbed up on a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And then says, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down from there, for I'm going to your house today. Am I the only one that went to church as a child? Nobody else sang that song? <laughs> so it's a very simple song, and it's a cute little tune, a cute little man, cute little story. And you can see why it's like in every children's Bible, right? Because... What child can't relate to climbing trees and being too short to see? But when you begin to peel back, I think, the layers of the onion to the story, you'll find that there's really nothing cute about it. In fact, you should feel either supremely offended or extremely shocked. So let's, let's read this story together. And the text comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. It says, he, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that every story that is in your word is is not there by accident. It serves a divine purpose. And through your word, Lord, you're communicating something to us that you want us to understand. But we cannot understand it apart from your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us teachable hearts. We can receive, Lord, what you have for us today. We give this time up to you, and we ask, God, that you be glorified in and through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So when we arrive at this story in Luke chapter 19, the very first verse, we're told that Jesus has now entered Jericho. And this is the last major stop, only 15 miles away before he and his disciples finally arrive in Jerusalem. And if you recall, I know this was many months ago, but in Luke chapter 9, uh, Dr. Steve preached about how there's a pivot point. Everything in that chapter pivots towards building up uh, towards Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, to the holy city. And this is where everything is about to come to a head. And so we're almost there. This is the last stop. And these are the final moments of Jesus' teaching ministry. He's already performed many miracles. Uh, He's already said everything that pretty much needs to be said. But there's one last person, one last person left for Jesus to encounter. And if you've heard Dr. Steve preach through Luke, I'm sure you already know how incredibly unpopular tax collectors were in Jesus' day. And, you know, as a former CPA, I have to confess that I have a special place in my heart for tax collectors in the Bible. I love Matthew. He's my favorite disciple, favorite gospel. But my first job out of college was as a public accountant. And I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I'd go on these audit jobs across the country. And I began to notice early on that when we arrived to do these audit jobs, we'd always get stuck like in these really uncomfortable rooms, like no heat, (laughs) poor lighting, uh, no windows, very little desk space, and sometimes there's like a boiler room or furnace room. (laughs) It's like, what are we doing here? (laughs) And I realized like nobody wants the accountants or the auditors around, right? So they, they try to make you as uncomfortable as possible so that you'll just leave. And uh, that's, that's what it's like to be, you know, an accountant. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, this is why I think when you look at the primetime television series, there's, there's always, like, all these series about doctors, lawyers, you know, cops, handyman, home renovators, FBI agents, even bass fishermen, but there's nothing about accountants. There's no TV series on accountants. <laughs> there's nothing sexy about being a CPA, right? Nobody likes us. But back in Jesus' day, it went far beyond that, right? Tax collectors were not just disliked. They were despised because they were viewed as extortionists who worked for the hated Roman government. And in fact, if you recall in the Gospels, when the Pharisees were indignant with Jesus, they would ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? And it's like, it's funny to me that it's grouped in that way because it's like you have the lepers, the adulterers, the murderers, the prostitutes, and they make up the sinners. And then you have like the tax collectors. They they like have a whole class of sinfulness all into themselves, right? And I didn't realize this until I was digging into this passage this week, but the way the Roman government would decide who gets these tax collecting jobs was they would hold a public auction. And so it would be awarded to the highest bidder. So a tax collector was someone so greedy, so bereft of morals, that he would personally promise the oppressors of his very own people more money than anyone else to win that job. And then he would make a living by inflating the tax rate above and beyond even what he promised the Romans. And he would skim all the surplus for himself. 
So if you think about it, these guys, they had a lot of power. You know, they not only had the ability to collect taxes, but they had the ability to arbitrarily charge people whatever they wanted. So in verse 2, when, when Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is not only a tax collector, but he's the chief tax collector. And not only is he the chief tax collector, but he's rich. He's rich. This tells us everything that we need to know about Zacchaeus. He didn't just skim a little extra for himself to make a living wage. He extorted others to bankroll his lavish lifestyle and to line his own pockets. This guy was the absolute bottom of the barrel. He wasn't just rich. He was filthy rich. Filthy rich. And this is the kind of guy you compare yourself to to make yourself feel better, right? You know, this is the parable that Jesus preached on just a chapter earlier. No, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that tax collector. And even here, we know this is true because you look at how everything, everyone felt about him, this tax collector. And after Jesus invites himself over to his home, verse 7 says, They all grumbled, the crowds. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And we've heard this complaint before, right? But on this occasion, it's different. It's kind of amusing, in fact, because up until this point, anytime anyone complains about Jesus mixing it up with sinners, it's the Pharisees and it's the teachers of the law who are doing the complaining, right? But this time, we finally encounter a man that everyone, I mean, everyone can agree is unworthy of anything good, especially the goodwill of Jesus, And so I think the danger of the Zacchaeus character in this story actually is that he's so greedy, he's so depraved, that many of us have a hard time relating to him, right? He's like this supervillain from like a comic book, right? He's untouchable. He's so bad. And it's easy to think that way, right? I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I don't rip people off for personal gain. I like nice things, but I'm not that greedy. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, really honest, all of us are more like Zacchaeus than we would like to admit. We share the same struggles he had. Like Zacchaeus, we want far more than we really need. We really do. We want far more than we need. And if you've ever been to Costco... You know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? We don't think twice about buying, like, 40 ounces of, of peanut butter. What are we going to do with 40 ounces of peanut butter? I mean, we don't think about buying, you know, 48-pack of ba- AA batteries. What are you going to do with that? You know, it's like light up Las Vegas. You know, we don't, and then after we, a hard day of shopping, we don't think anything about pounding down, like, a quarter pound of hot dog <laughs> and 20-ounce soda. That's just life in America. And we live in a country so full of excess that we've become desensitized, desensitized to our greed. But the reality is, like Zacchaeus, we want far more than what we really need. And like Zacchaeus, we place our hope for happiness in the things of this world, right? If I can just get that house, that next house, if I can just upgrade my car, if we can just plan that vacation, then I'll be happy. You know, no one would ever say that out loud, but that's what gets us up in the morning, right? 
It's like as soon as we make one big purchase, and then we find it's not enough, then we start to plan our next one. And like Zacchaeus, we do everything in our power to position ourselves to maximize our own personal gain. This can come in many different forms. It could be the pursuit of more degrees, right? It could be working ungodly hours just to impress your boss. It could be speaking poorly of your coworkers when they're not there. All this to advance our careers so we can amass more wealth, build more financial security, garner more power. We all have some Zacchaeus in us. But despite all of his shortcomings, I think there is much to learn from Zacchaeus because he was a man who desperately wanted to see Jesus. And verse 3 informs us that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking to see. And I think this little story brings to light some very important principles on how we come to see Jesus. Zacchaeus teaches us that to see Jesus for who he is, there needs to be three things. An exhibition of humility, an exercise of faith, and an expression of surrender. Seeing Jesus requires an exhibition of humility, an exercise of faith, and an expression of surrender. And I believe these, these three things, they're true, not only when we come to salvation, you know, when we, when we have our come-to-Jesus moment like Zacchaeus did, but they're true even in our journey of faith after our conversion. And so if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I, you know, I don't know if I've, if I've ever seen Jesus in my life, Or you're thinking, I don't feel like I see Jesus in my life right now, maybe in the past, but right now, no, I don't. And I want to challenge you to search your heart. And I want you to invite you to come and and see Jesus as Zacchaeus did, through humility, by faith, and in surrender. So looking at verse 4, it tells us just how much Zacchaeus was seeking to see, right? It says, he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. He ran on ahead and climbed up onto a sycamore tree to see him. Now, for any self-respecting Jewish man of that day to run, let alone to run and climb a tree, that was unheard of, right? Just unheard of it. That's child's play. And we learned about the indignity of this act in the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Remember when the father, he shockingly runs towards his wayward child. This is the heart of God. It should have shocked that Jewish audience. But no Jew with any sense of pride would dare do such a thing, especially a man of wealth. But if you think about it, isn't this the same place where faith for all of us began. There's a degree of humility that all of us must come to terms with when we decide to follow Jesus. Whether it's taking those first steps out of your seat, maybe during an altar call, or informing your non-believing friends or family of the decision you've made to follow Jesus. 
or sharing your testimony and recounting the dark pit of despair you were mired in, which led to your ultimate conversion. Every story is unique, and yet every story is the same. It begins with the exhibition of humility. Because at the very heart of the gospel is a recognition that I need help. I need help. I cannot do it on my own. And so I'm, I'm setting aside my shame. And I'm reaching out to God. And I'm asking him to do something for me that I now know I cannot do by myself. You know, I've, li- I've listened to over a hundred baptism um, testimonies in my life. And I can't think of a single one where someone got up there and said, you know, life was going great. It's fantastic, you know. Then one day I woke up and I, I just decided to follow Jesus. It was just like that. And then we've been like BFFs ever since. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen like that, right? When you listen to these testimonies, there's one thing that's consistent. It's that redemption always begins from a place of utter brokenness and humility. This is where people come to see Jesus for who he really is. Jim Cimbala wrote in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. It's such a profound truth. And I think it's so, it's so important to learn this as early as you can in your faith. You know, God cannot be manipulated, but in a sense, when he sees humility, I know that it moves him. It moves him. You know, if it moves him to action. And Zacchaeus didn't admit his need in so many words, but in his running and climbing to get a glimpse of Jesus, we find that his personal pride was overwhelmed by his desperate desire to see Jesus. And so if you want to see Jesus, you must exhibit humility. You must exhibit humility. Luke tells us in verse 4 that he ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. To see him. There's that word again, to see him. And this repeated use of this word see by Luke is, is interesting because if you recall from the message last week, this little story sits immediately after the one of Jesus healing the blind beggar. And I don't think that's an accident. Because there we saw a man who's desperately poor. He's a beggar. And who cannot see because he's blind. And now in the very next story, we encounter a man who's filthy rich. And who also cannot see. But only because he's too short. And so Luke juxtaposes these two men who cannot be any more different in terms of station in life and stature and wealth. One sits by a roadside and the other stands on a tree because neither one can see Jesus. But here's what's important to remember. Both of these men have a compelling desire to see Jesus. So much so that they ignore all shame and do everything within their limited power to see him. The blind man cries out in faith. The tax collector climbs up in faith. 
And it's such a small act of faith, really. But it doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. And both of these men are greatly rewarded for their faith. And Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it is impossible, impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. If we seek him in faith, just expect to be rewarded. You will be rewarded. Which brings me to my second point. If you want to see Jesus, you must exercise faith. You must exercise faith. Now, I want you to just picture yourself in Jericho that day. There's crowds everywhere. They're pressing up against Jesus. He's officially reached like paparazzi status. And when he moves, everyone else is moving along with him. And it's like this giant amoeba of people. And everyone there is wondering, where is Jesus going? Will he stop in town? Will he continue to Jerusalem? And as he walks, he's, he walks towards this unassuming sycamore tree. And to the horror of the crowd, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. It didn't take a whole lot of faith, did it? What did Zacchaeus have to lose? But it did require some faith. It did require some faith. By faith, he believed in Jesus' sincere invitation to come to his home that day. And that's why he came down. And I love these words. It says he received him joyfully received him joyfully. You know, all throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament, you see God make a command. And oftentimes, it gets kind of redundant. Like even in this verse, you see Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And the very next word says, so he hurried and came down. So he hurried and came down. And it's almost like repetition, isn't it? And yet, when you see God's people do that, you know that they are acting. But they're not just acting, they're acting in faith. And so it's almost like the, God's Word is telling us, when you do exactly what the Lord tells you, that is an act of faith. That is an act of faith. And all of us, we sit at the same tree as Zacchaeus. You know, Jesus has already come to us right where we are. And he's ex- extended an invitation to come into our heart and make it his home. And all we have to do is exercise the faith of getting off that tree and accepting that invitation. It's that simple. And yet, so many of us, inside and outside, maybe outside this room, spend our entire lives stuck up on that tree, don't we? We can't fathom that God would love us because of our sinful past or even because of our current sinful struggles. But the gospel says... You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. It's Tim Keller. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. It's true. You and I, are, we're, we're bad. We're far worse than we even know. But by faith, 
we must believe that God accepts us and loves us far more than we can imagine. And the only way off that tree is to trust the heart of God and the sincerity of his invitation. This comes by faith. And yet, this is the very thing, I think, that is under constant attack. That God does love you. That he has extended an invitation to you. And this was true in the Garden of Eden. It's true even for us today. So we know that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. We know that he was seeking. But this begs the question of why. Why did Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? What would prompt him to fight the crowds and to rub elbows with the very people who despised him? Why would he humiliate himself by running and climbing a tree? It's very easy to understand why a blind man would cry out to Jesus. You know, he, wants, he wants to see. But what was Zacchaeus lacking exactly? He was rich. His future was secure. And as I mentioned earlier, Zacchaeus really isn't all that different from so many of us. Technically, you know, he didn't break any laws. He's simply someone who knew how to work the system. And he dedicated his life to the pursuit of happiness through the means of money, wealth, and power. And to me, that just sums up the American dream, doesn't it? What's wrong with that? We're all Americans. And yet I think for so many of us, this is all discipleship really is. It's following Jesus is become, has become reduced to nothing more than pursuing the American dream with a Judeo-Christian ethic. And it's tragic, really, because following Jesus is so much bigger. It's so much better than that. And so we go to church on Sundays, and, and we worship, and we tithe. And then for the next six days of the week, we dedicate ourselves to building our own little kingdom here on earth. And I know this because I'm guilty of it too. But Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's such a tragedy if you think about it, that we would build our little sandcastles here on earth and fail to invest in something far greater, the kingdom of God. Or even worse, fail to forfeit an inheritance of something far greater, the kingdom of God. I turned 40 last year, and, and I went through my own midlife crisis a few years ago. And I was climbing the corporate ladder, and um, I was making you know, more money than I had ever imagined. And yet, I still felt this emptiness that was gnawing inside me. And I saw other men uh, struggling um, like me and at this age, and I came to realize that most men in America go through a midlife crisis not because they have failed to achieve the American dream, but rather it's because they've succeeded and they found it desperately wanting. And I think this is why really wealthy people, they go on to start foundations and they work for nonprofits. And what, because I think once you accumulate a certain level of wealth and you find that meaning and purpose aren't there, then you go in search of it elsewhere. And for many of the wealthy, it's found in, in giving much of it away. Look at Bill Gates. So what happens when you tirelessly toil to reach the top of the mountain peak and you finally get there and you find that the view is not what you thought it would be? I'm convinced that this was the revelation of Zacchaeus. 
in his older age, he came to realize that no amount of wealth or power could make him happy. This is the only explanation for why he went out that day and set aside all shame to go and see Jesus. And so to see Jesus, there must be an expression of surrender. An expression of surrender. In the previous chapter in Luke 18, you you may recall Jesus encountering a, a rich young ruler. And when this man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is kind of disturbing, isn't it? He says, sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And then it says, the rich young ruler, he went away sad for he was extremely rich. You see, this young man still believed that he could find happiness in his wealth, and so he was unwilling to part with it, unwilling to surrender. But remember, he was young. He was young. He had not learned this important life lesson yet, which Zacchaeus had learned. You know, I'm, I'm proud to say that we, I think we have a, a pretty strong giving culture in our church here. We have so many young professionals. Um, they're doing well, advancing in, in careers, and the Lord's really blessing the work of so many hands in our church. If you were at the congregational meeting and, um, a couple weeks ago, I think it, it's pretty obvious. But my prayer is that we don't fall into this lie that I know I believe for so many years that Zacchaeus did as well. And we don't fall into this trap. It's such an American mentality that to assume that as our paycheck goes up, then our standard of living must increase accordingly. And the only antidote to sin is the gospel, but I believe the only antidote to greed is generosity. I'm not saying that you have to sell all your possessions or even half your possessions like Zacchaeus did, give it to the poor. But if you find yourself growing in greed, just to be more generous, be more giving, Surrender all that you have fully to Jesus. Whether you keep it or not, hold it loosely. Surrender it in your heart. I, I love Zacchaeus' response to the grace of Jesus. You know, he vows to give half his possessions to the poor and repay four times over anyone that he's defrauded. Can you imagine getting a tax refund from Zacchaeus? <laughs> It's like the tax refund to end all tax refunds. You see, Zacchaeus discovered while he is the one who collects taxes, Jesus is the one who forgives debts. And in surrendering, he found true freedom. So the one who seeks to see Jesus must exhibit humility, must exercise faith, must express surrender. This was true of the blind beggar sitting on the roadside. This was true of the rich tax collector standing in a tree. And it's true of you, it's true of me, it's true of all of us today. Now before I close, I want to reset our focus from the one who seeks to see, Zacchaeus, and I want to focus for a moment upon the God who seeks to save, and that's Jesus. Because at the end of the day, This isn't a story about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. It's really about a story about Jesus seeking Zacchaeus. And this is the the wonder and the glory of the gospel. 
that we may think even in our own minds early in our faith that we were the ones that somehow were seeking Jesus. But in the end, we come to realize it was God who was seeking and who was saving us all along. Upon receiving Jesus gladly, we see an immediate transformation in Zacchaeus. He goes from one who exploited others to now one who blesses others. And in verse 9, Jesus makes this amazing declaration. He says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And he says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It was as if Jesus knew that his death was approaching and he wanted to write the epitaph to his own grave. This is how he wanted to be remembered. A seeker, a saver of the lost. That's what he did in Jericho that day. That's what he still does today. And I think this statement summarizes the very essence of the Christian faith. This is what separates our religion from all others in this world. Every other faith is man's attempt to reach God. Only in the gospel do you find a God who has come down to earth with one simple mission, to seek and to save that which was lost. And I have to say, you know, to me it seems like Jesus is kind of rubbing it in the faces of everyone there that day. You know, before this huge crowd, this is what he proclaims. And it's like after three plus years of ministry, Jesus wanted to put the final nail on the coffin. Make no mistake, I came to seek the least of you, even a man like Zacchaeus. You know, one commentator makes the observation that in Zacchaeus, Jesus had finally found a real-life person to bring to life so many of his parables. You see, standing in front of the crowd that day, in Zacchaeus was the embodiment of the prodigal son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep. Not only that, he was the opposite, the antithesis of the rich young ruler who was unwilling to part with his wealth and follow Jesus. You see, Zacchaeus proved that a camel can go through the eye of a needle. A rich man has entered the kingdom of God. But God has done it. God has made the impossible possible. And as Jesus' ministry comes to a close, we see that he does not save the best for last. No, he saves the worst for last. The worst of sinners. And not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector. A filthy, rich, chief tax collector. So if the story teaches us anything, it's that the grace of God reaches so low that even the shortest of men with the smallest of hearts cannot escape his love and find salvation. And that same invitation is extended to you and to me. The day we receive Christ and every day thereafter. All that is required to receive his invitation, to come into our hearts, and to see him in our homes is the exhibition of humility, the exercise of faith, and the expression of surrender. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I want to invite us into a time of quiet reflection.
If you find yourself today in a place where you feel that you cannot see Jesus in your life, then I think chances are you've stumbled somewhere in one of these three areas. You know, maybe it's, it's pride, which is preventing us from exhibiting humility. Maybe it's the stubborn refusal to mend a broken relationship. An unwillingness to humbly take the first step in initiating the peace. This could be describing your marriage today. A broken relationship with a friend, a relative in your family. And yet we need to come to a place of humility if we want to see Jesus working in our life. Maybe we cannot see Jesus because we are blinded by our fears, which is keeping us from exercising our faith. There's so much to be afraid of. Fear of a physical sickness for you or a loved one. Maybe it's the fear of not being able to reach a child that is pushing you to your wit's end. It's fear of your own future, your own job security. But in those moments of fear, we have to ask ourselves, can I trust the love of God? Can I trust that God loves me? God loves my children. God loves the one I love people I love even more than I do? Can I obey in faith just as he commanded? Can I do exactly what he's told me by faith? This is the exercise of faith, a faith that overcomes fear, a faith that obeys exactly what God instructs us to do. If you don't see Jesus in your life, lastly, it may be because something is keeping you from expressing full surrender to him. We could be holding on to many different things. Idolatry comes in many different forms. It doesn't have to be money, wealth, or power. It could be a secret sin, a habitual sin that has power over our lives that we, if we're honest, we love too much to let go. And yet freedom can only come through surrender. And seeing Jesus can only come when we release from our own hands so that we can make room to receive him and everything he desires to give us. Let's just take a couple more minutes and let's meditate in prayer. How is the Spirit speaking into my heart this morning? How do I see Jesus as Zacchaeus saw Jesus that day? Let's pray. 